Alright, let's get started. So tonight, um, welcome Jason, Caroline, and adios to Jana and Matt and Lisa, who has been here a long time, almost as long as I have. So tonight, uh, the title of the evening is Lord of the Sabbath. And we've been talking about the life of Jesus. In specific, the so, so Luke especially has the the story of Jesus broken up into about four different sections. So it begins with a few chapters about the birth and early life of Christ and um, <clears throat> the conception of genealogies, all of that, that all of the, that, those things. The second period is Jesus' Galilean ministry, and then around Luke nine, ten, somewhere there. Uh, it says that Jesus begins to go toward Jerusalem, and from there until the time of Passion Week, everything that happens is within the context of Jesus journeying to Jerusalem. So that's the third section, then finally you have the death and resurrection of Christ. Where we've been looking at the last couple of lessons is in Jesus' Galilean ministry. This is kind of the, the heart of his uh, time here on earth was spent there in Galilee. So, Jesus has been visiting all the local synagogues. He's teaching. He's working miracles. People are flocking to see him. He's uh, calling disciples to come and follow him. And then we come to Luke chapter 6, which is where we're going to be looking tonight. And uh, we know about what time of year this was. Passover has just been celebrated in the uh, Jewish tradition. And they are in the middle of what's called counting the Omer. And if you look at Leviticus 23, which you should, uh, and you should try to figure out what all that stuff means, because it actually does uh, factor in a great deal into the work of Jesus and our world today. But if you look at Leviticus 23, they were to celebrate the Passover and the uh, Feast of Unleavened Bread and the Feast of First Fruits. That all happened on one extended weekend. And then from the first day of the Feast of First Fruits, which was usually a Sunday, they would count the Omer. And God had told them in Leviticus 23, that from the feast, from the first day of the week after Passover, which is a Sunday, they were to count seven weeks plus one, that's 50 days, and uh, at the end of those 50 days, they would celebrate the Feast of Pentecost, as we know it, or Shavuot, as they referred to it in their tongue, which is when they celebrated God coming down to them on Mount Sinai. So Passover has just been celebrated, they are counting the over towards Pentecost, and the wheat and barley are just beginning to ripen. We come to Luke chapter 6. I'll read the first five verses. This is in the, my daily translation, so it's going to have some Hebrew transliterated words in there. Anyway, on the second Shabbat day of the counting of the Omer, he was passing among the fields, and his disciples plucked heads of grain, crushed them in their hands, and ate. Men from the Pershim, which is the Pharisees, said to them, Why do you do what is not to be done on Shabbat? Yeshua answered and said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? he and those who were with him, that he entered the house of God and took the bread of the presence and ate and gave also, sorry, and also gave his men something that is not correct to eat except for the priests alone. He said to them, for the Son of Man is also the master of Shabbat. So Shabbat, Shabbat, <laughs> Shabbat, Sabbath, I'm going to be using those words interchangeably tonight. Sabbath was a big deal to the Jews. Do you have any idea why? If you go back into the book of Exodus, you'll see that God came down to them on Mount Sinai. He made a covenant with them, and he said specifically, this is going to be the sign of the covenant. That sign is that you will keep my Sabbaths. 
So today, a lot of people wear wedding rings as a sign of the covenant of marriage. The Sabbath day, or Sabbath day observance, as it's given in the uh, book of Exodus, was the sign of the covenant, was Israel's wedding ring. Their failure to observe the Sabbath rest was directly connected to the fact that Israel went into captivity for 70 years. Let's read what some of that was like. This is what God says in Leviticus. And I myself will devastate the land, so that your enemies who settle in it shall be appalled at it. And I will scatter you among the nations, and I will unsheath the sword after you, and your land shall be a desolation, and your cities shall be a waste. Then the land shall enjoy its Sabbaths as long as it lies desolate. While you are in your enemy's land, then the land shall rest and enjoy its Sabbaths. As long as it lies desolate, it shall have rest, the rest that it did not have on your Sabbaths when you were dwelling in it. So God made it very clear to the children of Israel that the land belongs to him, not to them. And he said, every day on the seventh day of the week, I want you to rest. But that's not all. Every seven years, you're supposed to give the land a break. You're not supposed to plant crops. You're supposed to take it easy. You're supposed to enjoy this seventh year. Every 50 years, which is seven years times seven, 49 years, the next year is the 50th year, they would have what was known as the year of Jubilee. That is when all the debts would be canceled. Any land that had been sold would go back to the uh, original owner's uh, of that land, all the slaves would be free. It's basically a once-in-a-lifetime event that happened every 50 years. <clears throat> so, God told them what would happen if they neglected to keep the Sabbath. He said, if you don't keep the rest of my land, I'm going to take you out, and the land will rest. Look at, first, look at Second Chronicles 36. This is all the way at the end of the time of the Old Testament. Close to it, I should say. He took into exile in Babylon, those who had escaped from the sword, and they became servants to him and to his sons until the establishment of the kingdom of Persia. That's talking about Nebuchadnezzar, by the way. To fulfill the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah, until the land had enjoyed its Sabbaths. All the days that it lay desolate, it kept Sabbath to fulfill 70 years. So let me show you what this looked like. Israel, from the time of the judges, where they crossed the Jordan River and began to conquer and settle in the land of Canaan, from Israel until the time that the nation of Judah, the southern kingdom, was finally taken away, was 490 years. In those 490 years, as far as we know, Israel had not once kept their seventh, day, seventh year of rest. 490 divided by 7 is 70. And God said, you're going to go into captivity for 70 years, and all those years that you were supposed to rest... The land is now going to rest while you're not in it. And at the end of 70 years, God says in the book of Jeremiah, I'm going to bring you back. Now this exact scenario plays into Matthew 18, which we're not going to talk a lot about tonight, when uh, Peter asked Jesus, how many times shall I forgive my brother? And Peter and Jesus answers the question until 70 times 7. But it has nothing to do with the number, except for the fact that Jesus was telling Peter that you should forgive your brother like God forgave Israel. We'll get to that when we talk about Matthew 18 later in class. My point is that uh, by the time Jesus came around, Israel was well aware of their history with the Sabbath. They had paid dearly for it, and they were determined that this is never going to happen again. You ever have something that really regrettable that happened in your life, and you decide, you know, that's the last time that's ever going to happen. 
Israel decided that this is never happening again. Any idea what their plan was for staying above board with the Sabbath? Something like this. Fences. If you grew up being told the story that we used to, we used to live here, we were prosperous, things worked out for good until we stopped obeying God's commandments concerning the Sabbath. And our people were horribly punished. We were taken out of the land of Israel. After 70 years, God brought us back. And son, I want you to make sure that you never dishonor the Sabbath. Because if you do, God might take us out again. Boundaries. How do you feel about boundaries? You like rules? Nobody's sticking up their hand and saying, yes, Nate, I like rules. I'm, I'm a rule guy. That's my thing. Okay? Sheepfolds have walls. The walls generally serve three purposes. They keep the wolves out. They keep the sheep in. And they make life a whole lot less complicated for the shepherd. Because he can go to bed and not worry about it. How do you feel about boundaries? Are there any problems with boundaries? Yes? No? Give me an example. How many of you guys like playing volleyball? Okay. Are you okay with getting rid of the boundaries in volleyball? Okay. Keep going here. What are some of the problems with boundaries? Um, some are too constricting and make the problem worse. True? Okay. Maybe the heart won't change even if the boundaries are followed. Have you ever heard that one? Maybe we, maybe we become complacent and, we, and assume that we don't need to worry about anything anymore because, well, we've got the fence, and the fence will take care of that for us. And I know I've showed this quote in class already, but it's been probably so long ago that most of you don't remember it. This is a quote from J.R.R. Tolkien. And uh, he says this, The wide world is about you. You can fence yourselves in, but you cannot forever fence it out. And he was referring to a group of people in this book, that had become complacent. They assumed that the nice, ordered, sheltered life that they were living was just going to continue indefinitely and nothing was ever going to come and threaten that. And it made them weak. <sighs> Boundaries. How many of you grew up in churches or in families that had, a, that had unique rules, guidelines, boundaries for what you could and could not do on Sunday? Pretty much everybody? Okay. How has that influenced your thinking today? Some of you resent it. Some of you think, no, it was just fine, and I'm, I'm completely happy with how we did things. I'm, speak, I'm not speaking of rules at this point. I'm talking specifically about uh, Sunday, or what we talk about as our day of rest. So, <clears throat> currently, we are still coming out of the Victorian era uh, from the 1700s, where if you read books like Farmer Boy and other things 
uh, of people who were observant back in those days, you didn't do anything on Sunday. You did the chores, and that was it. Uh, I read Farmer Boy to my children <coughs> occasionally, and you read how like Sunday was just this awful, boring day because he couldn't even sit by the fire and whittle on his uh, wooden chain because they were just not allowed to do anything. You couldn't go sledding. You couldn't go outside and play. You had to sit in the house and, and study your catechism, whatever that was. And I remember thinking, what is a catechism? And uh, you couldn't do anything. Allow me to introduce you, introduce you to Senator Joe Lieberman. I don't believe he's a senator anymore, but he ran for president alongside Al Gore back in the year 2000. He is an observant Jew. He can probably quote far more scripture than the rest of us in this room put together. He wrote a book called The Gift of Rest. I'll read a little bit here for you. It's Friday night, raining one of those torrential downpours that we get in Washington, D.C., and I am walking from the Capitol to my home in Georgetown, getting absolutely soaked. A United States Capitol policeman is at my side as we make our way up Pennsylvania Avenue from the Capitol building toward our distant goal, a four and a half mile walk. Before leaving my Senate office, I changed into sneakers, but now they are full of water. As we slosh forward, a Capitol police car travels alongside for extra security at a stately pace, but I do not, indeed I cannot, accept a ride in the car. What accounts for this strange scene? The presence of the two policemen is easily explained. As the Senate Sergeant-at-Arms, who oversees the Capitol Police, once said to me, Senator, if something bad happens to you on my watch while you're walking home, it will be bad for my career. So that's why the police are with me. But why am I walking instead of riding on a rainy night? Because it's Friday night, the Sabbath, the day of rest when observant Jews like me do not ride in cars. That would violate the letter and spirit of the Sabbath laws, as the Bible and Jewish rabbinical opinions make clear. Normally, I get home from my work and start for the time of Sabbath, Shabbat in Hebrew, or Shabbos in Yiddish, at sundown on Friday. But on this occasion, important votes on the budget of the United States kept me from doing so. Voting in the Senate is conducted the old-fashioned way, by voice, and there are no proxies. You can't vote on behalf of one of your colleagues. If I miss an important vote, that would mean that on that particular issue, the people of my home state of Connecticut would lose their representation. They would lose their say in the running of our country, the spending of their tax payments, or the safety and quality of their lives. That is something my religious beliefs tell me I cannot allow, even on the Sabbath. So when there are votes in the Senate after sundown on Friday, I vote, and then I walk home. I've taken this long walk from the Capitol to my home on 30 or 40 occasions in my 22-year senatorial career. The police officers who accompany normally provide not only security, but also welcome companionship and conversation. Many are devout Christians. The journey takes about an hour and a half, and we've had some wonderful discussions about the Sabbath in particular and faith in general, but not tonight. It's just too wet and miserable to talk much. It's now 10 p.m., and my police escort and I take a break and slip under the shelter of a convenience store awning. I must, at that moment, I must admit, I looked to the heavens from which the rain continued to pour and asked, half in humor, half in sincerity, Dear God, is this really what you want me to be doing to remember and honor the Sabbath? That's not a question I often feel compelled to ask. Observing the Sabbath is a commandment I have embraced, the fourth commandment to be exact, which Moses received from God on Mount Sinai. Most of the time it feels less like a commandment and more like a gift from God. It is a gift I received from my parents, who in turn received it from their parents, who received it from generations of Jews before them in a line of transmission that goes back to Moses. For me, Sabbath observance is a gift because it is one of the deepest, purest pleasures in my life. It is a day of peace, rest, 
and sensual pleasure. When I say the Sabbath is sensual, I mean that it engages the senses. Sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch with beautiful settings, soaring melodies, wonderful food and wine, and lots of love. It is a time to reconnect with family and friends, and of course, with God, the creator of everything. We have t the, the creator of everything we have time to sense on Sabbath. Sabbath observation is a gift that has anchored, shaped, and inspired my life. So, you might ask, if it's such a gift and pleasure, why not just get in the car with the policeman and take the easy, eagerly offered ride home? We're going to come back to Senator Lee in a minute. That sounds a little different from how I grew up. <clears throat> Jesus made it clear that he came to bring freedom and liberty. Right? Didn't he? There's also that inconvenient little part about taking up your cross and denying yourself and all of that. But here's the question. What should our relationship be with things that might be important? Now here's the difficult part of something like the Sabbath, or you could really enter any of the commandments of, of God that we take seriously. What should we do with it with things that we think are important? Maybe they're too important. Maybe they're misguided. Maybe they're too important for the wrong reasons. So what does it really mean that Jesus is Lord of the Sabbath? Was keeping the Sabbath important? Well, apparently. Because they were sent into captivity for not doing it. That sounds kind of important. What was the mission of Jesus when it came to these issues of their faith and culture? We talked about culture before in class recently. All of us live in a culture. You cannot get away from culture. You can get away from your culture or this one, but you cannot escape the fact that you're going to live in a culture of some kind. Most of you are on the young side. Jean Piaget, who was a childhood development psychologist, uh, observed, and he has not been the last person to observe this, that young adults, as they enter into their late teens and near adulthood, go through a messiah complex stage of development where they feel they need to change the world for the better because there's so much wrong with it. And some people never develop out of that stage. Um, some of us have. But here's, here's how that works out. You probably have a much easier time pointing out the flaws in our system than you do the things that are working or offering well-thought solutions to the problems that you see. Is that right? Now, maybe you don't see that, but I definitely see that. Not from you in particular, but from people your age in general. If you'd say, what's wrong with the rules at Mountain View? You could probably tell me. And if I'd say, okay, so what's really good about the rules of Mountain View? Uh, I'll think about that one for a bit. Because it's not as readily available in our minds. Let's go back to the beginning of Sabbath between God and Israel. Exodus chapter 20. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. 
on it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that in them, and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day, the Sabbath day, and made it holy. What was the specific command in Scripture regarding Israel on the Sabbath? Pretty simple. Rest. You're not to work. You're not to make your servants work. You're not to make your animals work unnecessarily. That sounds pretty simple, right? Until you read that a man was stoned for picking up sticks on the Sabbath day. And you realize that, oh, this is actually serious. Leviticus 23. Speak to the children of Israel and say unto them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord that you shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed feasts. Six days shall work be done, but on the seventh day is a Sabbath of solemn rest, a holy convocation. You shall do no work. It is a Sabbath to the Lord in all your dwelling places. So this is at the beginning of the uh, chapter in Leviticus 23, where God lays out the Hebrew biblical calendar. So we already had Passover, uh, which is the start of their religious new year. But then God also lays out the following feasts that are going to happen. You're going to observe Passover and the spring feast. Then you're going to have uh, Pentecost and the summer feast. And then you're going to have trumpets and Feast of Tabernacles and the Day of Atonement in the fall. And the very first thing that God said is that you're going to observe the Sabbath once a week. Now, there's wording in here that's important. The, uh, the word for convocation, there it says this is a holy convocation. The Hebrew word for convocation is milkra. And milkra means dress rehearsal. You know what a dress rehearsal is? It's a practice. We're running through this before we get to the real thing. God said in Leviticus 23, these are my convocations. These are my dress rehearsals, presumably for what's coming down the road. And if you look at the life of Jesus, and we're going to look at this once we get to Passion Week, um, how that Jesus fulfilled things like Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and he rose again on first fruits, all for a reason. And the Holy Spirit came down on Pentecost, all because, all the way back here in Leviticus 23, God laid out a calendar for them and said, this is how I'm going to reveal myself to you, but you're going to spend centuries practicing it before it happens. Now, what would Sabbath be a practice for? You know what the Hebrew word Shabbat means? It means intermission. Intermission is the break between what was and what is coming. Back to Senator Lieberman. The Sabbath is an old but beautiful idea that in our frantically harried and meaning-starved culture cries out to be rediscovered and enjoyed by people of all faiths. It takes the form it does, its laws and customs, because from ancient days, generations of rabbis and sages have been transmitting, refining, and elaborating traditions that define Sabbath observance. These traditions build fences, like not riding in a car, for example, around the Sabbath to protect it as a day of faith and rest. The Sabbath is an organic entity reflecting centuries of thought and experience. It is not an arbitrary contrivance. Some ordinances have, may have seemed meaningless in the past, but they have been revealed in their full meaningfulness in modern times. I constantly seek the wisdom of Sabbath practices 
and I'm rarely disappointed by what I find. If the cost is an in occasional inconvenience or discomfort, like getting soaked on the walk home from the Capitol, I consider that a small price to pay for all the Sabbath gives and teaches me. Hadassah and I, Hadassah is his wife, sometimes speak of a place beyond time called Shabbatland. In many ways, the Sabbath is an entirely different place from the one in which we live our weekday lives. It is a place away from clocks and watches, bound only by the natural movements of the sun. Whether I'm spending Shabbat in Washington, D.C., or in my hometown of Stanford, Connecticut, entering the Sabbath is like stepping into a different world defined not by geographical boundaries, but by faith, tradition, and spirituality. On Shabbat, Rabbi Schneerson, the Rebbe, or the chief rabbi of the Chabad Lubavitch movement, said, We cease to struggle with the world, not because the task of perfecting it is on hold, but because on Shabbat, the world is perfect. We relate to what is perfect and unchanging in it. Their saying is, these Orthodox, non-Christian, non-Messianic Jews are saying is that on Sabbath, on our day of rest, we step back from the world and we enter the world as God intended for us to experience. A day of rest to be with him. How does Luke 6 fit into this? Well, what was Sabbath like for the Jews by the time Jesus comes on the scene? They had come a long, long way from the idea of rest. Had expanded a bit. Here's the thing with boundaries. <clears throat> All of us agree that boundaries are good. Or at least we would say that they have the potential to be good. I find it interesting that the most liberal, Democrat, far-left-leaning, anti-border wall person that you can think of lives in a house with walls and shuts the door at night. They're totally fine with walls. Just not everywhere. Okay? Here's the thing with boundaries. Most of us exist that they most of us agree that they should exist for the good of everyone else. We need rules, of course. Or at least other people need them. I don't, but we should have them, but they shouldn't apply to me. Everyone agrees in principle that boundaries are good, but we argue about where to draw them. So, the Jewish believers had committed themselves to never allowing Sabbath violation to happen again. There's a question for you. I was at a cliff one time with Kai. Not a cliff, but a cliff. And uh, it was about 300 feet in the air, and he was, I don't know, four or something like that. And he insists on picking up rocks, running toward the edge, and throwing them over. Now, you can imagine how that made me feel as a father. We didn't go back after that. Would it be appropriate for me to allow Kai to be at the cliff unsupervised? No. Okay. Should I make a fence at the cliff? What about if you come along and want to enjoy the view? You see what I'm saying? You're going to come along and look at this fence that I built for the protection of my son and say, that's stupid. I don't need a fence to not jump off the cliff. That's kind of a side issue. 
But I, I, uh, I say that to illustrate what they did with the Sabbath. They decided, and rightly so, that keeping the Sabbath was important. How do we make sure we don't violate the Sabbath? Their solution was, let's build a fence. And this was actually biblical, because God told them, in the law of Moses, when they were entering the land of Canaan, he said, you're going to build houses. When you build the flat roof of your house with the stairway up to it, build a fence around the edge of the flat roof. Why? So that when your neighbor comes up to hang out with you, he doesn't fall off the edge and die, and you will be responsible because you didn't take steps to protect him. Okay? How do we protect the Sabbath? Well, in the Mishnah, which was the, at the time of Jesus, was the oral commentary on the law, a couple hundred years later it was written down. And uh, chapter 7, so this is from uh, Shabbat, the Jewish Encyclopedia, talking about the Mishnah. There's a whole list of chapter 1 talks about this, 2, 3, 4, 5, and 6. 39 categories, categories, not rules, 39 categories of laws <coughs> pertaining to the Sabbath day. Chapter 7 lists the 39 principal categories of creative activity forbidden on the Sabbath. 7 related to agriculture, 4 to the preparation of food, 13 to clothes making, 7 to butchering and tanning, 2 to writing and erasing, 2 to building and demolishing, two to lighting and extinguishing fires, one to giving the finishing touch to something, and one to, carry an ob and one to carrying an object from the public to the private domain, and vice versa. And it also discusses the sin offering to be sacrificed in the temple for the inadvertent violation of the Sabbath, and how much violation it takes for you to have to go offer a sin offering. That's, one, that's an overview of one of the chapters in a list of like 13 chapters. That's impressive. And you thought we had a lot of rules. So much so that Senator Lieberman, for example, uh, because the lighting of a fire is forbidden, that's why he doesn't ride in a car. You know why? Because the combustion engine lights fires at like 8,000 rounds per minute or something like that, or per second, minute, whatever it is. Minute. <clears throat> You think our culture has a lot of rules. Some of us are at peace with that, and others of us chafe at them like crazy. What are we gonna do? Well, what did Jesus do? I think you I think everybody would say that the point of all the rules and regulations around the Sabbath day was correct. In principle, they had decided this was important. God said it's important. And we're going to take it so seriously that we want to make sure that nobody ever inadvertently breaks the Sabbath day. Luke 6, 1 through 10. We already read the first uh, five verses. Let me read the, last, let me read the uh, second for you because it's another Sabbath encounter. So, verse 5. And he said unto them that the Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. And it came to pass also on another Sabbath that he entered into the synagogue and taught. And there was a man whose right hand was withered. And the scribes and Pharisees watched him whether he would heal on the Sabbath day, that they might find an accusation against him. But he knew their thoughts, and said to the man which had the withered hand, Rise up and stand forth in the midst. And he arose and stood forth. Then said Jesus unto them, I will ask you one thing. Is it lawful to do on the Sabbath days to do good, or to do evil, to save life or destroy it? And looking around upon them, and looking around about upon them all, he said unto the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he did so, and his hand was restored whole as the others. 
So you had two Sabbath confrontations going on. First one, the disciples were walking through fields of corn. They picked the corn. That was completely fine. This was not considered stealing because if you were walking through the field, uh, you were allowed to pick and eat what you needed for right then. So the issue that the Pharisees had with what was going on was not the fact that they were eating somebody else's corn, but the fact that they were husking it and rubbing the, rubbing the cobs between their hands to break off the kernels to eat them, which was something that was forbidden by the Mishnah. The second question is, would Jesus heal on the Sabbath? Because that would have been considered work. Now, I don't know how necessarily did Jesus like, look at the guy and go, and then he was healed. I, yeah, I don't know how that was exactly that was considered work. But look how Jesus, here's the question. How does Jesus respond to what most of us would see as unbiblical rules? You understand the question? Because all of us have rules in our lives that we see as unbiblical, or at least unhelpful, or taking things too far, or misguided, you get the point. What does Jesus not do? He doesn't rail against the stupid people who came up with these ideas. He doesn't say they shouldn't exist. He doesn't throw out the entire system as ignorant and oppressive and cultural and traditional and all this jazz, which is what many of us would do. What does he do? Let's look at the two verses here. First John, or sorry, John 1.14. And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory. If you want to know what God looks like, John tells us how you can figure that out. You watch Jesus. That's what the word, the law, all the definition of the Old Testament from the time of Adam up until the time of Christ. If you want to see the fulfillment of what that looks like, if you want to know what God on earth looks like, read the Gospels. Because that's what he looks like. Okay. Second verse, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to destroy the law of the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. We talked about this in class recently, how that fulfill, that word, uh, means to rightly interpret something. He's there to bring them back to what God had wanted for them as a people. He fulfilled the law by living it, not destroying it. And now Jesus is confronted with two issues of the law. Except they're not issues of the law, are they? They're issues of application. So there are places that Jesus there are places that Jesus condemns the rules that the religious establishment had set up. And this is not one of them. He doesn't speak against what they're doing. What he does do, I should say it this way. Jesus interprets the law correctly by appealing to the hearts of the Pharisees and saying, isn't it okay to eat when you're hungry? Isn't it okay to do good? Because the Son of Man is not under the Sabbath. You are not under the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for your enjoyment and your pleasure, not to hold you in bondage. Jesus doesn't condemn the boundary. He just places it in proper perspective. So here's the thing with culture. <clears throat> culture can be toxic, controlling, cult-like, oppressive. And far too many times in our circles, that's what it is. 
But I would venture to guess, and I'm going to speak from my own experience because I don't know, you know the church and the family and everything else that you grew up in. But I would say from my own experience, many times the issue isn't really with the cultural boundaries that are set around me. It has more to do with the fact that I'd like to have life tailored to my desires and what I think is important. And I really resent it when it's not like that. Many times when we struggle um, with our culture, not all the time, because culture is not of utmost importance, but many times what's happening is God is testing our hearts and asking us, how are you going to relate with things that you don't like? Going back to the idea well, I should say one more thing here. Jesus worked within the framework of his culture to bring the people back to God. And you know what they did? They killed him for it. The religious and political elite were so threatened by the life that he was bringing that they destroyed him. But you know, it says the common people heard him gladly. Back to the idea of Sabbath. In conclusion. Do you really know how to rest? How many of you that have 10 to 6 while you're here? Keep your hand up if you enjoyed it. <laughs> Some of you did more than others. I have yet to hear someone come back from a 10 to 6 say that really just was a wasted day. Nobody does that. You know why? Because we actually rested. Now, it's harder to rest than it used to be, but Senator Joe Lieberman while he was a U.S. senator, turned his phone off Friday night and did not turn it back on until Saturday night. And if he can do that, we could probably do a few things to rest too, couldn't we? Here's my point. Throughout the centuries of Judaism, uh, it has been said that Jews did not keep the Sabbath. The Sabbath kept them. And by them choosing to step aside, step back from the world that one day of the week, it has enabled them to keep their culture and their faith and their identity as a people. What about us? I look at my own life, and I see that I really don't know how to rest. And Jesus does not condemn the emphasis that they put on keeping the Sabbath. He just says, uh, you guys have your priorities a little messed up here. But we also read that Jesus just after this passage here in John chapter or in Luke 6, went into a mountain and spent all night there praying to God. So if I can challenge you with anything from class tonight, it's this. Can we rest? Can we make it a priority to step back from the world? Not because we have to give up things and, and be resentful about it, because, but because we need to rest. And we need to take time to step aside and enter the rest that God has given us. That's all I have tonight. You are dismissed.